You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So, we got here, uh, Hosea chapter, chapter 14. And uh, I think uh, before I, I open up this morning, I'd like to share with you a story because my ambition this morning is to walk you guys through um, how our Lord in this passage gives a vocabulary of forgiveness to his people. How our God gives a vocabulary of forgiveness and repentance to his people. I want us to see a God who takes upon his own shoulders the weight of the sin of his children, and a God who does not just give second chances to those children, but who actually himself personally achieves all that is necessary on their behalf for them. That's where we're going this morning. And uh, to open up, I'd like to illustrate it with um, a conversation that I had with my little brother this week. I was up in Chicago traveling uh, to see family for Thanksgiving, and I was able to steal away to Lockport, Illinois for a few hours to run by my brother's apartment and spend some time with him. And in the course of normal conversation, um, the Lord put it on my heart um, just in real time to seek his forgiveness. Um, I had recognized in talking to my little brother, he's three or four years younger than I am, that I had terrorized this kid when we were growing up. Um, Really from as young as I was able to start terrorizing until about 11 or 12 years old, that I had bullied my brother. I had name called. I had um, literally beat him up as often as I wanted. And this was a boy who worshiped the ground that I walked on. He wanted to be just like his big brother, followed me everywhere. I was happy to take advantage of that and to uh, uh, benefit from that and also just to be like flex on him as often as I, as I wanted. But it was something that uh, turned when we were older, when we became teenagers and onward. We, you know, we're beautiful friends today. But I had never named that sin to him and never sought forgiveness from him. And I'd never sought to restore and reconcile over that. I just kind of let it naturally fade. And there was something in the conversation that just led me to want to put a finger on it and to make right these sins from 20, 25 years ago. And in the course of the conversation, what I did is I, I put my finger on it and I said to him, Jake, when we were kids, I was awful to you. Called you names, beat you up, put you down. Um, was withholding of my approval from you, and I'm sorry. And my brother is a kind man, and he said to me, you know, Adam, to whatever degree I can forgive you for things that I've forgotten, I forgive you, but I don't remember these things anymore. And not only do I not remember them anymore, but I, what I do remember is a few years after what you're talking about, when I was getting bullied and in middle school that you stood up for me. And so, listen, I'm not carrying that anymore, and I don't want you to either. And it was a beautiful, a beautiful conversation between brothers. And I thought twice about sharing this conversation with you. The reason I do is because it was, I think, a portrait of where we're going this morning. I think that the Lord put it on my heart to have this conversation with my brother on account of the time that I've been spending in this passage in preparation to preach to you. See, what I wanted in um, apologizing to my brother was to seek reconciliation and restoration of what I'd broken with him. 
And to do that, what I had to do was name and confess the sin and to come to him seeking forgiveness and mercy to rebuild, right? And then my brother, what he did is he said, not only do I forgive you, but I remember these sins no more. And not only that, but I don't regard you as this man that you're talking, but I actually regard you as the opposite of that today. And I just saw so much godliness in that response, so much of our intrinsic desire when we approach the Father for forgiveness in this interaction. And so I want you to hold on to that, and it obviously pales in comparison uh, to the nature of seeking forgiveness with the Lord, and yet there's so much parallel to what we see here. What we see our God doing is taking this vocabulary of forgiveness, this language of repentance, and placing it on the lips of his people. Beginning here in chapter 14, verse 1, we see the Lord saying from his heart through the mouth of Hosea, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Now, in giving this language to his people, we have God commanding his people through a prophet to return to him and to bring words. What words? These words that I'm giving to you. These words that I'm, well, what, what are they? Well, first is to return to the Lord. Number one, return to the Lord. The, the language of forgiveness, the nature of forgiveness and forgiveness seeking, the first thing we've got to get right that the Lord is showing us is the object of our forgiveness or the one to whom we're seeking forgiveness. We must go to the one who, who we need forgiveness from. And it's the Lord himself. So he calls his people, you need to return first to me, the Lord your God. He says, the reason then is because you've stumbled because of your iniquity. I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about uh, these two words that the Lord God uses to talk about his people. First he says, you have stumbled. And then he says, the reason they've stumbled is because of your iniquity. Now, I've been preaching this all throughout the book of, of Hosea, that the, that the behaviors of the people are natural outflowings of an inward condition, that the iniquity is internal and that the expressions of sin are external. But what they're doing with their hands is just telling the truth about what is wrong within them. Well, we see that in this language. We see, for you have stumbled, this is an outward thing, because of your iniquity, this is an inward thing. This word iniquity in the Hebrew, it means something like distortedness or distortion, that there's something awry within you, that because of what is broken innately and intrinsically within you, because of your sinful estate, because of your sinful nature, you stumble, you walk out your sin, you demonstrate your sin outwardly, and so he says, come to me, return to me, my people, to the Lord your God, because you've stumbled outwardly due to your iniquity inwardly. And so when we talk about giving language to forgiveness seeking, what we see is God saying, come to me and acknowledge not just your deeds, but what is behind the deeds. Come confessing and ready to talk about what's broken within you, the distortedness within you, the corruption of the flesh. 
take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, listen to this, take away all iniquity and accept what is good. Now, you can imagine um, the apologies that you've brought forward in, the, in your life, and you can think about the forgiveness that you've sought from people in your life. And a lot of times what you're going to do is you're going to apologize, if you're like me, for a very specific thing you did. I'm sorry that I did this. My, my, the worst apology, right? I'm sorry if I offended you. Or I'm sorry if, that, if you took that the wrong way. Or we, we kind of take ownership and we put it on the other person and we apologize for them when we're really trying to apologize. But if maybe if we're willing to take one step further than that and take a little bit of ownership, we just want to apologize for the action. I'm sorry that I did that. And that's good, to name the stumbling, to name the outward action. But the fullness of forgiveness-seeking with God, it moves from confessing the action, the sinful action, to talking to Him about the wretchedness within us, to confessing to Him our iniquity, our iniquity, the distortedness within us that led to that behavior. Now, we had talked about how a lot of the times what that is is it's actually an accusation or an unbelief about God, that I did this because I believe this thing about you. There's something in me that is against you, that is rebelling against you. So he says, come to me in your stumbling and your iniquity, and with words return to him and ask him for what? To take away all iniquity. See, when you ask God, take away all iniquity, you're not saying, listen, God, I, I'm generally good, I just, but I am sorry for this one thing that I did, but you're bringing the fullness of the thing before him. You're, 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 you're bearing yourself before him, and you're saying, I know you see it all, and I'm asking you and you alone to take it from me. The psalmist in Psalm 143 says, no one living is righteous before you. This is you acknowledging that before God. Paul agreed with this for himself in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, when he said, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He recognized what the psalmist recognized, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we are broken intrinsically before God. We come to him with iniquity, and if someone's going to deal with this, it's going to have to be him. So we don't come making vows of how we're going to make ourselves right, but we come to him pleading for mercy, for forgiveness, and for him to take up the action upon himself, which we cannot bring about in our own strength. Now, when we do this, he says that we say to him, take away all iniquity, semicolon, accept what is good there in verse 2, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Now, you guys have maybe caught on if you've been following along that it turns out Hosea is a beast to translate from Hebrew into English, and there are a lot of spots where it gets funny. This is one of them where he says, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. These things are more connected than it sounds in the English. It's like the vows of your lips are the bulls, is how you ought to, to, ought to understand this, that the, the bulls are to represent sacrifice, that the sacrifices that we offer to you, God, as we return to you, are the vows of our lips, that there's something proceeding from within you, a sacrifice from within you that you are offering to the Lord as you pursue forgiveness, as you pursue reconciliation with him. Well, this made me think of Psalm 51. You guys will remember the story where um, uh, King David, while well, a, well, a good man is off at war, he takes his wife for himself, and she gets 
pregnant. And because her husband is off at war, there's no chance that this guy is going to believe that that baby is his. And so he pulls that guy off the battlefield and brings him home. And he tries to trick him into going home and knowing his wife so that he'll believe that this baby, when the baby is born, is his baby. But the man, being an honorable man, says, how can I go home and sleep in the warmth of my own bed when the king's men are off at battle? I can't do this thing. And so because he can't convince this man to go home, he, he sends instead the man back to battle with his own death letter in his hands, and, and he commands the commander of the, of the military to send this man to the front lines into the harshest of the battle to make sure that he gets killed. So to hide his sin, he, he has the man slain. And then the Lord sends a prophet into David's life, and he speaks a prophecy against him, and he pierces him to the heart over his sin. Well, this psalm, Psalm 51, is, is David penning a psalm of contrition and repentance in light of all that the Lord has shown him about the depth of his personal sin and wickedness. And this is what he says in verses 9 to 17. See the parallels with our text here in Hosea. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. If you look at the language of forgiveness seeking that we see in this psalm from David, what you see is everything good proceeding from God and contrition proceeding from man. It's going to be God who has to hide his face from his sins. It's going to be God who will need to blot out his iniquities. It's going to be God who will need to create in him a clean heart. It's going to be God who will need to renew in him a right spirit. It's going to be God who is going to keep him in his presence and not remove his spirit from him. It's going to be God who can restore him in the joy of his salvation. It is going to be God who can uphold him in a willing spirit. It is going to be God who will cause sinners to return to him. It's be God who delivers him from blood guiltiness and into salvation, it will be even God who opens his lips to bring him to declare his praise. Later on in that psalm, he'll say, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What he says is ultimately, it's, it's you who has, who has broken me in my sin, and it is you who will bring praise back to my lips. It, it is you that you would, not, you would not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. This is the part that I want you guys to focus on, that when we talk about this, this um, uh, take away all iniquity and accept what is good and will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, listen, you can't even in your own merit, in your own strength, bring about true repentance. You can't even really authentically have, give yourself a broken and contrite heart over your sin. All your ways are wicked in and of your flesh. For you to even see that you are sinful before a holy God and to desire restoration from him, that itself is given to you as a gift of God by his Holy Spirit. That's why, that's why uh, David says that the sacrifices of God 
are a broken spirit. See, not the sacrifices for God. That's not what he says. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That that's a sacrifice, that a sacrifice that's actually brought forward from God. That it's of God, not for God. He would love for him to delight in a sacrifice. He said, if you would delight in a sacrifice, I would give it. But you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, and he's crediting the Lord for putting this sacrifice within him. And so now he's offering back to the Lord what the Lord has put within him. So listen to me, church. If in your sin you have been brought low, and you have a broken and contrite heart before the Father over your sins to the point that you are coming and confessing that brokenness and that contriteness to him, know that you are offering him a sacrifice that he placed within him, but within you that he finds pleasing. You know that that offering of sacrifice to the Lord is pleasing to his nostrils because it's from him. That is the sacrifice of God, and he's placed it within you. And so this is what, these are, this is the word of, the words of forgiveness, the vocabulary of forgiveness that God is putting within his people. He says, come to me and say, take away my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with the bulls of vows of the lips. We will, we will say to you, no longer this, but this. We, like, you can take away our iniquity, not, and we'll get there, not Assyria, not horses, not any of the stuff that they've been pursuing, not their idols, not the works of our own hands, but you, God, can remove my iniquity. And, they, and he will put praise back on their lips. To take away all iniquity and to accept what is good. Listen, you can't bear that to be made right with God, to seek forgiveness from God. You cannot come to him vowing all that you are going to do. He will not delight in, in sacrifices of burnt offerings. Otherwise, you would give it, wouldn't you? Listen, the, the history of Israel is just laced with men who were doing all the things, heaping the animals up on the altar and burning them and doing all the things while nothing was changed within them. And we learn progressively throughout the testimony of Scripture that, that Israel, in God's sight, uh, like how Paul says that not all who are descended from Abraham are true Israel, that God was always looking at the circumcision of the heart, not the obedience to the law. And so there were people heaping up all the sacrifices and, and fulfilling all of the things that God required, and yet inwardly they were still marked by their iniquity. Listen, a burnt offering you will not be pleased with, but the sacrifice of God is the broken spirit. So we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, take away our iniquity, and accept what is good. Now, we're going to be inclined to think, accept what is good, meaning now we're doing good, so please accept it. I know we used to do bad, but now we do good, so please accept that. But when the rich young ruler came to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Listen, if you're coming to Jesus thinking, calling him good teacher, that he was a good man, Jesus himself said, only God is good. God alone is good. Don't come to me and call me teacher and call me good at the same time. If you're going to call me good, you're going to have to call me God. 
And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, for us to go to the Father and to say to him, take away our iniquity and accept what is good, what we are saying is accept Jesus on my behalf. He can wash away my iniquity and he is the good sacrifice which is pleasing in your sight. Accept Jesus on my behalf. We don't go to the Father bartering. We don't say, accept my offerings of good works. We don't say to him, here's my righteousness in exchange for your forgiveness. What we say to him is, take my iniquity, wash me white as snow, purge me of my sin, and accept what is good, which is the good offering which you have offered in my place, not which I have brought to you in my own strength. We need Christ to stand in for us, the good shepherd. And then he moves into this Assyria shall not save us. We'll not ride on horses. We'll say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Listen, if we are going to be purged of our iniquity, if he's going to take away our iniquity, listen, not the stumbling. Not, we're not just dealing with stumbling, with outward sin. If we are going to have our inward wickedness cured, healed, then the blood of the lamb is going to have to be uh, applied to you. That, that circumcision of the heart that we talked about, what, what we talk about in New Testament terms is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need to have God himself take up residence with you to change you from the inside out. And if that's what happened for you, it was Jesus who did it. It was of Jesus that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to talk about, uh, talk about taking away all iniquity. How about the sins of the world is what John the Baptist said of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus himself in Luke 7, he said to this woman, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests begin to say to one another, who is this who even forgives sins? See, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his own life for the sheep, and he is also the one true God who is the one who, who, who you owe all of that repentance to, all of that confession to, the one that you need forgiveness from. You're going to need it from Jesus. And it's in him that the orphan finds mercy. Listen, our God, he's a father to the fatherless. He adopts spiritual orphans, the, to the people who he said, who he called not my people, who one day he looks to them again. He says, you are my people. This happens because you are adopted in by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the application of the work of Christ on your behalf, not by your good works. And you're saying, Adam, you've told me this before. Well, I'm going to tell you this again. I'm going to tell you this again because when they start saying this, I mean, really, really read this with me. Verse 3 onward. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This behavior, they are attributing to the behavior of an orphan. It is the orphan who looks to Assyria for salvation. It is the orphan who rides on horses to make himself large. It is the orphan who says our God to the work of our own hands. I mean, think of how like pathetic it is. I've got no father, and so I'll make one. 
with my own hands. It's the orphan who does this. The one who has no God is the one who thinks it's a good idea to make one out of wood. It's the one who has no God who thinks, I'll really be somebody if I just sit up a little bit higher on this horse. It's the work of an orphan, and the Lord looked at you in your pathetic effort, in my pathetic effort to make something of myself and to make a, a God for myself and to make a father for myself, and he took pity on you, and he took pity on me in his mercy and his abounding steadfast love, and he applied his mercy to orphans. He saw orphans, and he brought them in. But listen, let's go backwards a little bit, and let's remember why Israel was doing this stuff. Why did they turn to Assyria? Why did they turn to horses, which are just a placeholder thing for like military might? Why did they turn to the works of their hands? Well, to try to escape the discipline of the Lord. You remember, the Lord was bringing an end to them as a nation, and they turned to Assyria to try to fend off the consequences of their sin. They were trying to beat God. They said, Assyria, save us from God. Let the horses save us from the discipline of God. Let the works of our hands prosper us against God. And this is where I really want to invite you guys to pause and to take a minute and to think about the things that the Lord is taking from you right now. Not, not many of us have a very well-developed theology of the discipline of the Lord toward his children. We always think about wrath, and wrath is not for the children. Remember, we've established that. Wrath isn't for the children. Discipline is for the children. And right now, have you, have you ever had a conversation with God? Have you ever asked the Lord, is this discipline? Are you disciplining me? Or do you quickly sprint to trying to fight and, com- and contend with God to try to reclaim idols that he's taking from you? Here's a good test for that. It works in my life anyway. Let's suppose that the Lord says no to something that you think he ought to say yes to. Let's say that he's not letting you have a thing that you think that he ought to let you have. What happens in you? Do you start accusing him? Are you not talking to him about that? We don't go there, God. I, don't, I can't think about that, God. I'm angry with you, God. How could you withhold this thing from me, God? How could you take this thing from me, God? I am owed this thing, God. Listen, if that's your attitude over the things which the Lord has either withheld from you or taken from you, if it causes you to rage against God or to neglect God or to go and try to chase or secure these things for yourself apart from God and ignore God altogether in it, then there's a good chance that the Lord removed that from you in discipline that the Lord is, is, is keeping that from you in discipline. It's a good indication that that's an idol, and since your Father loves you, He won't let you have it. Now, I'm going to go one further. Some of you heard that, and now you're like, so if I stop doing that, He'll finally let me have it. And the emphasis is on if I change my behavior, He'll finally give me my idol. And that's how I know He still won't. 
right? Because he loves you too much to let you just have your idols. That's, that's, that, that's just not what our Father does. And so I wonder if there's room for some of us to be talking to him, not about, God, why are you so mean to me for not letting me have these things which I am so sure that I need, but ask him, Father, are you disciplining me? Have I made this an idol? And if so, to thank him for keeping from you that which you would replace him with. Listen, what's Assyria for you? Maybe God has not permitted you to have something, and so you've turned away from him and you've turned to Assyria. Listen, if my father won't, maybe Assyria will. What is the world power that you turn to 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 be the giver of the goodness to you that you think that God is withholding from you? Or the horses? Where has the Lord made you weak and you've sought to mount the horse and to overcome weakness by some earthly strength? Or where is the work of you, what is the work of your hands that you have turned to where God has said, I will not provide this to you? He said, fine, I'll do it myself. Please take my word seriously here. Your salvation is not at risk, but your joy is as long as your eyes are off of the Father and you are contending with him to try to secure for you idols, which he is lovingly prying for, from your hands, you're going to experience this as agony when you could be experiencing it as life-giving joy. And so I want to invite you to really think this through. The Lord has seen orphan behavior in you in those places, and yet in him you find mercy. Let's move on. Here's the good stuff. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take, like, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It's I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Huh. Like, let that land on you. I will heal their apostasy. Like, you ever think of your apostasy as something that needs healing? We don't think about this word apostasy very much. We, a lot of times we think of it as just total renunciation of faith, you know, like someone being burned at the stake, and, you know, if you renounce Christ, then we'll let you go. But apostasy, it means like disloyalty. It means like to turn from. And so it doesn't need to be like total renunciation like, you're, like, like we like to think of it. Apostasy is something that can be healed. It's something that can be healed. Listen, there's, there's a part of you that turns from the Lord and not towards him when you see the work of his hands. There's a part of you that turns from the Lord and not towards him when you consider certain aspects of his character that you don't like. There are parts of God that you spit out. There are parts of God that I spit out. In a lesser sense, this is apostasy. 
It's a rejection of God or a turning from God or a, or a renunciation of God because I don't like that thing that you've done, God, or I don't like that thing about you, God. What is that thing for you? It needs healing. It needs repentance. It needs confession. It needs these words of forgiveness seeking, this vocabulary that the Lord is putting in, but it needs healing. And the Lord God is the one who says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, without price. My anger is turned from them, be like dew to them. You'll blossom like the lily and take root like the trees of Lebanon. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that can't be shaken, right? Like solid ground, root like the trees of Lebanon. That would have been good, good news to 8th century Israel who had only known the waves back and forth with God. He'll take roots like the trees of Lebanon and his shoots shall spread out. This is the part that's really good news to us. Because those shoots have spread out all the way to Mascouda, Illinois and Scott Air Force Base. See, the healing of the apostasy of the people of God has reached the nations on account of this promise and this work of the Lord. He has brought his children in, these orphans. He's adopted them in from among the nations. Those shoots have spread out and their beauty, the beauty of the children, shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. The Lord finds his people pleasing in his sight. Well, we've already covered this, guys. We've covered it. No one living is righteous before you. None is righteous. No, not one. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right and not the ability to do it. What is this pleasing nature of the people of God in, in, in the Father's sight? Well, it's Christ in you. It's Christ in you. And it's, it's Christ which has led you in verse 7 to return and to dwell beneath his shadow. He gives good shade to his people. He is your rest. He is your protection. You know what I like about the image of a shadow is that you've got to be bigger than me to cast a shadow on me. He brings you, he, he right-sizes you, and he places you under his wing. And you shall flourish. And there's two pictures here, like the grain and like the vine. Like the grain and like the vine. Remember what Jesus said about the grain? He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, then it remains alone. But if it dies, then it will bear much fruit. See, becoming like the grain, Jesus being the grain, is really good news. In dying to ourselves and being brought into new life, we see the multiplying fruit of the kingdom of God over the face of the earth. You are here today, a child of God, adopted orphans before God because a grain of wheat went into the ground and died, Jesus Christ. And then he multiplies that in you so that as you die to yourself and live unto Christ, you multiply the church on the face of the earth and the kingdom spreads in an unshakable manner which cannot be stopped. And you are also like the vine. Remember what Jesus said about that? I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, it is he who will bear much fruit. Is this not what we see here? O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen of Cypress, and from me comes your fruit. See, you want to bear fruit? 
unto the kingdom of the Lord, you want to look like Christ, Christ will have to do that. It's the Father who does that. It is the Holy Spirit, the new life placed within you, that bears fruit in your life. Listen, some of you, we spent all that time in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, we spent all this time in Hosea, and still some of you are functioning, and maybe all the way home, you will function in this space in your mind where you're thinking, I'm going to trade my fruit to the Lord for his mercy. I'm going to trade fruit for forgiveness. I'm going to bring fruit that I produce to God, and he's going to say, now I find you to be pleasing in my sight. Now I find you to be worthy of adopting. Listen, the fruit that you bear in your life is a product of your adoption. It is a product of the fact that you have been found pleasing in God's sight. You produce fruit because he's placed new life within you, because he has grafted you into the vine. You don't trade fruit for righteousness. Your fruit is the evidence of the righteousness that has been placed within you. Do you understand? Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Chapter 14 begins and ends with this notion of stumbling. He calls a stumbling people, a people who have stumbled to return to him because of their iniquity, and then he closes his prophecy with transgressors stumble in the ways of the Lord. And so I want to end our sermon series in a similar place. You're not stumbling church and the world isn't stumbling just because they have vertigo right and they do that's the nature of intrinsic inherent sin is we are we are we have an iniquity problem and so we stumble because of what's wrong within us we lack balance we are corrupted right like we stumble but that's not what we're talking about here what we're talking about is stumbling over something what the lord is talking about is stumbling over an obstacle that was in your way Now, that obstacle was seen as an obstacle because of our iniquity. And that obstacle here, he says, is the ways of the Lord. That the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul expands on this when he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is a direct mirroring of what was prophesied in Isaiah 8 in the same time period where Isaiah wrote, he will become, the Messiah, a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is a sanctuary and a stumbling block. For all men, he is either the sanctuary in whom we flee from our iniquity, who cleanses us of our iniquity, or he is the stumbling block who in our iniquity we stumble over. You're going to stumble over him, or you're going to find sanctuary in him. And this is the same that the Lord says here. The ways of the Lord are right. The upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Listen, some of you are going to take this as law now. And this is why I want to land it safely. We don't want, we're not trying to become Jews here. The Jews didn't get it right. We want to be true Israel here. And what this means is that you don't walk in the ways of the Lord in order to become made right with the stumbling block. You will walk in 
the ways of the Lord in Christ on account of the fact that rather than a stumbling block, he has made himself to be your sanctuary. That's what he says in Isaiah 8. The Messiah will become a sanctuary and a rock of stumbling. A sanctuary and a rock of stumbling. Now my question for you this morning is, are you still stumbling over Jesus? Because that's the holding point. You're not sinning just just to sin. You're You're sinning as you stumble over Jesus. And I don't know where you stand today, but what I know is that if you're still stumbling over Jesus, if, if you still get to the point of the gospel where I've got to confess to a holy God that I can't make myself right with him and that in Christ alone I can be made right and that my righteousness has to be foreign to me and that, and that I need mercy, if, if, that, if that's still a stumbling block for you, then you stand opposed to the Lord your God, to your creator, And today is the day for you to take this vocabulary of forgiveness-seeking, which he provides, and to go to him with these words and to talk to him authentically about the iniquity within you and to let him minister his gospel over you. And today can be the day where the stumbling block becomes your sanctuary. And if he is your sanctuary, then you are acting incredibly foolish to take what is your sanctuary and to turn it into a stumbling block in your mind, to think that now I need to walk out something in order to maintain this. I need to walk out something in order to keep this. He, if, he's, if he is your sanctuary, then he's not your stumbling block. You don't walk in the law to keep his favor. You walk in him because that's who you are. It's the difference between doing in order to become or secure or maintain and doing because that's what you are. If new life has been placed within you, then the fruit will be born on account of the fact that the Holy Spirit must produce evidence of life in you because that's his job, to give glory to Jesus with you. And on that day, church, in closing, when you stand before God, when you stand before the judge of the universe, and you pass into eternal life as through fire. Everything that you built, not on, the, uh, not on the foundation of Christ, will be burnt up like chaff, like wood. It will be worth nothing. And so many of us are going to be surprised by which things get burned up and which things are actually refined as through fire. So, so many of us are going to think, surely this thing I did for God is going to be something that is refined. And we're going to be so surprised to see that it was burned up because, in fact, we were trying to earn something by our works of righteousness with God, and it was worthless in the kingdom economy of Christ. And yet those things which you thought surely were going to be burned up are going to be beautified because in those moments you were desperately clinging to the righteousness of Christ for your salvation and the gospel testimony advanced on the face of the earth because of your desperate need of Jesus and and the testimony of your life that you needed him and not your good works to be made right with God. Listen, don't fill your lives trying to muster up an offering to God. Christ is your offering to God. You already have the perfect sacrifice, and it has already been made yours. So walk in Him. Trust in Him. Let your life be the story of your desperate need for Christ and how that need was met in Him and his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. Can we do that together? Let's pray to that end.